You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Last week, we started looking at the subject of biblical authority, and we looked at how Jesus kind of understood it and how he kind of applied it and walked it out in his life and his ministry. If you weren't here last Sunday, I encourage you to get on the website. You can listen to that message. This morning, I want to look at the role of biblical authority and why it is so critical to the stability and the sustainability sustainability of both individual believers as well as the corporate body of Christ. I'm talking about the church universal, not just us here locally. As I stated last week, so much of the lack of respect for authority in our culture when it comes to our families, our school, you know, our government, the police with each other is because there has just been such a breakdown and an abandoning of the teaching of God's words. And I know a lot of you know this, but the United States was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, and many of our founding fathers were sincere and devout Christians. Imperfect, yes, as we all are, but sincere in their love for God and his holy word, so much so that many of the establishing um, founding documents of our country, whether it's the Constitution, uh, the, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, they kind of all derived their inspiration from Scripture. Many of the laws in our country today, that they're a reflection of the teaching of scriptures, so much so that, that the word of God has, has really had a very long and a very deep history in our country since its founding. And it just seems to me, the more and more we get away from that, the more and more our country is becoming kind of unraveled and unrecognizable. The recognition of God's word upon the founding of this country is what led John Quincy Adams once to say, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any others. In other words, the only way to maintain the United States of America as it was originally founded is by adhering and maintaining our allegiance our authority to the word of God. Not only is that important for our country, but it's also crucial for us as believers. I believe there's really no other way to really experience deep, abiding growth, spiritual transformation apart from solid biblical teaching, studying and applying the word of God in our lives. This we see reflected even in our church motto, which is changing lives through the unchanging word. We believe that God changes lives through his unchanging word. 2 Timothy 3.16 is probably one of the best descriptions of what the word of God is really designed to do in the life of the church, in the life of the believer. And there it simply says this, all scripture, all scripture from Genesis to the end of Revelation, all scripture, The stuff you like, the stuff you don't like, the stuff you agree with, the stuff you don't agree with, the stuff you understand, the stuff you're yet to understand. All scripture is inspired by God. 
Yes, written by infallible men, I hear that, but inspired by God, that was the driving force. Inspired by God, and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. I cannot find a better description of the design, the purpose, the intent of the word of God than what I just shared with you there. The Bible is uniquely and solely God's instrument. It's his instruction manual for ultimate spiritual growth and life change. Other books were given to us for information, but it is the word of God alone that has been given to us for life transformation. There are a wonderful uh, number of translations, different translations out there, and I share many of those different translations here on Sunday morning, but the best translation of the Bible is when that is translated into our daily living The Bible finds us where we are, lost, broken, hurting, and with our cooperation, we just surrender. When we just come at it with humility and obedience, God takes us where he wants and desires us to go. So I want to take some time these next few weeks, and I just want to just focus on the importance a biblical authority as it relates to our spiritual growth, our transformation, and our witness to the world around us. In today's church, there seems to be just this ever-widening difference in approach in the way we view biblical authority. One approach that many people take to biblical authority is they are those who would acknowledge the Bible has good things to say. We should go to it you know, for advice from time to time. There, there are some really good stories in there that, that I may use, especially if I'm trying to get my kids to do something I want them to do. I'll use those stories to kind of leverage them in my direction. If the leg on my dresser is broke and I, I needed something to prop up the dresser, I wouldn't use the Bible because I, I, I do have a degree of reverence for the Bible. I would use a dictionary, but I would never use the Bible. But in terms of it being the ultimate supreme authority in my life, in terms of the Bible being authoritative in the way I live my life, live my marriage, raise my kids, spend my money, I'm not there. I follow the Bible in some areas of my life, but there are some other areas where I just kind of do it my way. That's one approach to biblical authority. The second approach to biblical authority is going from viewing it as a good book that has you know, some good things to say to actually submitting yourself and every aspect of your life under the word of God as the ultimate supreme authority. How many of you growing up as kids, you could not wait to become an adult? I, I remember thinking those thoughts when I was a kid, man, I just cannot wait to become an adult because there just are some things as adults um, that that we get to do that we couldn't do as kids, right? I mean, the biggest one is just making our own decisions. 
I mean, to be able to stay up as late as I wanted to stay up, to go where I wanted to go, to watch what I wanted to watch, to do what I wanted to do. I mean, one of my things growing up was I couldn't wait to do was I wanted to eat a whole batch of raw cookie dough. <laughs> couldn't do that as a kid. And I just would think as I would see that cookie dough on the counter, oh, I can't wait till I become an adult. I'm going to make me a whole batch of raw cookie dough, and I'm just going to eat the whole thing. Right? And then we become adults. And what happens? We discover it's not just mom and dad. It's not just our teachers telling us what we can and can't do. We now have, have bosses. We have, we have government. We have police now who are starting to tell us what we can and can't do. And we kind of begin to discover there are all kinds of people and institutions still telling us what to do. And all we wanted to do was just grow up, be left alone to do our own thing. And then to make matters worse, you became a Christian maybe. And just when you thought maybe you had four or five areas in your life where you could be in control, you could call the shots, and all of a sudden, God comes along, and now he wants to tell you what he thinks about what you should do in those four or five areas. God wants to tell you how to entertain yourself. God wants to tell you how to raise your family. God wants to tell you what to watch and what not to watch. God wants to tell you how to spend your money, how to raise your kids, how to do your marriage. And that's why a lot of people, both believers and unbelievers, kind of keep God at a comfortable distance. I don't want you, God, telling me how to run my life. And the problem with that kind of thinking is we run into the person of Jesus Christ. One of the most amazing things about Jesus, that even though he is God, he places himself, willingly, voluntarily places himself under the authority of, the, of his heavenly father, under the authority of the Old Testament, because the New Testament hadn't been written at this point. And I'm thinking if there was ever a guy who could be the sole proprietor of his life. If there was ever a guy who could kind of just operate on his own, do his own thing, kind of be a spiritual lone ranger, to do it his way, it would have been Jesus, the Son of God. And yet, with all that freedom, all that power, all that potential, Jesus willingly, fully, submits and subjects himself to the authority of his father and he places the word as the supreme authority. Matthew chapter five, verse 17 through 19 is one of those instances where Jesus kind of gives us a glimpse into how he viewed uh, the word of God. And he said, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish or to do away with the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets, no. Came to fulfill them. I assure you until heaven and earth disappear, even the smallest detail of God's law will remain until it is achieved. So if you break the smallest commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Scripture was a binding authority 
for Jesus in spite of who he was. And as you read the Gospels, you kind of find that as Jesus would go into uh, the, the synagogue to teach, he would open up the law, the books of the prophet, and he would teach, assuming and insinuating that these are binding laws on the men and women of that day, including himself. Now, why is this so important and worthy of, a, of distinction? Because you will not experience the kind of life change and spiritual growth God desires for you or for the life of this congregation unless we place ourselves completely under the sole authority of the Bible. And I'm speaking from the grassroots of the members all the way up through our leadership. The Bible must be our final complete authority for everything that we think, that we believe, and how we live. When individuals abandon biblical authority, your spiritual growth, your potential for life change will be severely impaired, if not completely eliminated. And here's the thing, when churches, when denominations, and I'm gonna talk about this in just a few minutes, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about here. When individuals and when churches when abandon biblical authority, there are devastating consequences. When a church abandons surrendering themselves to biblical authority, several things will begin to happen, and we're gonna look at those things over the next couple of weeks. Because things will happen because that authority has to shift somewhere. When biblical authority is abandoned by individuals and churches, that authority has to shift somewhere to something or to someone. And there's always gotta be an authority structure. Whether you know it or not, whether you intended it or not, there is always a structure of authority. And if the church ever veers off the path of, struck, of, of allowing the scriptures to set the pace, the tone, to set the direction of the church, somebody is going to step in and take over that position and they will become the authority. One of the first things that often happens when a church, a denomination, abandons biblical authority the authority shifts to the people, the person in the church who are the most influential. Sometimes those are the people that are the richest. Sometimes they're maybe the people that are in the highest positions, but somewhere along the way, the people who view this as an important book have shifted out from underneath the authority of the Bible what happens is that authority usually shifts to the person with the most money or the most influence. Janie and I graduated in 1994 from seminary, and we moved to Iowa, and we were uh, both appointed uh, as elders uh, in the United Methodist Church, and we served in the uh, United Methodist Church as elders for nine years. And one of the things I really appreciated, one of the things I really found very attractive about the United Methodist Church was its historical, uh, and I, I emphasize historical position on biblical authority. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, 
He had this process, he had a formula for how he would approach various doctrinal issues or, or cultural issues of his day. And, and he would use this formula to kind of derive how he would arrive at where he would be at on, on, a, on a certain doctrinal issue or a cultural issue. And so he relied on four criteria, scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. And, and these kind of became known as uh, the Wesley or the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And, and, and that is still taught in various uh, seminaries and churches today. And, and so Wesley would filter all of the doctrines of the church, especially those things that were maybe kind of unsettled. Um, or, or maybe they were kind of new doctrines that were kind of starting to infiltrate the church. Um, or they were maybe cultural issues, you know, such as slavery was a big one in Wesley's day. day. And, and he would take all of that and he would kind of filter it through this formula, this process, the, the Wesley quadrilateral of scripture, reason, faith, or uh, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Now let me just kind of briefly explain these four areas because I want to go somewhere really important with this this morning. Now scripture obviously refers to the Bible, uh, the, the word of God. Wesley, now you've got to understand this, Wesley strongly and unwaveringly believed scripture was authoritative over all things. It was the final authority over any and all other claims. Wesley believed the Bible contained the only measure whereby all other truth could be tested. He believed the scriptures contained everything necessary for life and godliness. He believed the scriptures were written by, by uh, you know, fallible men, um, but who were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. He believed the Bible was complete in and of itself. It lacked nothing. It needed nothing. What the Bible made clear was clearly settled to Wesley. That was his position on Scripture. It was the final authority. If all the other three disagreed, uh, he went with the authority of scripture. Tradition was understood as how have past generations viewed and applied the doctrine, the issue being looked at. So he, he, would, he would look to the past, what were the traditions of the past, how did they view it, how did they believe on this particular issue, how did they apply it? Wesley believed traditional evidence is either strengthened or weakened by the length of time. So the longer it was around, the stronger it would become. And, and he says, as it must necessarily pass through so many hands in a continued succession of ages. In other words, he just believed the longer the belief review has been around, that it's been embraced, the stronger its place in tradition becomes. So for example, murder first shows up in Genesis chapter four, where Cain murders his brother Abel. Now from that time to the present, murder has always been considered wrong. We, we view it as sinful, uh, and the vast majority of cultures throughout time have laws and punishments that would deter, again, the senseless act of murder. So from a Wesleyan point of view, given the way that murder has been addressed, not just by tradition, but by scriptures, you know, thou shalt not murder. That was one of the big ten. So, so scripture was authoritative on that. 
and then he would look at it, you know, uh, from, from a historical point of view, how have other cultures throughout time dealt with this issue? And, and he believed, as he looked at that, that, that this, through tradition, this belief on murder has been strengthened, not weakened. Now, reason, according to Wesley, was basically the cognitive ability to know and to understand uh, who God is, to understand his word, who we are. It's to be able to, to have the cognitive ability to see God the way he truly is. Wesley wrote, now, he said this, now, of what excellent use is reason if we would either understand ourselves or explain to others those living oracles, the word of God is what he's referring to there. Now he clearly believed that without reason we cannot understand the scriptures. We, we can't understand the essential truths of scripture. And Wesley did caution, he said, reason is not a mere human invention he said it was given by God to us for a very, very specific reason, and that was that we could know him personally. And Wesley would say any form of reasoning that abandoned God, he would view that as, as faulty or misapplied reasoning. Wesley believed and taught that reasoning must be assisted by the Holy Spirit if we're to ever understand the mysteries of God, which was the whole purpose behind God giving us the ability to reason. The final four, experience. Wesley believed apart from Scripture, experience was the strongest proof of Christianity. Wesley was fond of saying what the Scriptures promise, I enjoy Wesley insisted that we cannot have reasonable assurance of something unless we have experienced it personally. So for example, I can have a scriptural, I can have a doctrinal belief in physical healing, but when I am physically healed, when I experience that physical healing in my own body, it takes the scriptural, the doctrinal belief in physical healing to a much higher level of belief. There was a time in John Wesley's life, which is very interesting, where he had kind of this doctrinal belief in salvation, but he lacked the experience of salvation. And I want you to listen to how he describes his experience of receiving salvation, and he wrote this in his journal. He said, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. In other words, uh, I, I, I didn't want to go to church. So he had, he had those moments in his life as well. And he said, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change God, of which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warm. That's just a big, I mean, known phrase in, in Methodism, I felt my heart warm, uh, strangely warmed. And he said, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That was the power of experience in Wesley's uh, spiritual journey. So again, these four elements, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, was how Wesley Approach doctrinal and cultural belief and issues. This is so key to understand because this is largely what we have begun to abandon in the churches today. And again, scripture being authoritative, being binding over all the other three. 
meaning tradition, reason, and experience always, always, always yielded to the authority of God's word. Tradition, reason, and experience, they were secondary and never canceled out the inspired divine word of God. Now why am I telling all of you this? What does this have to do with biblical authority? Good question, I'm glad you ask. Remember what I said earlier, when, when you abandon scripture as the highest, ultimate authority, someone or something will move in and take its place. When a church, a denomination abandons biblical authority, the authority always, 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 always shifts somewhere. Interestingly, in 1968, the United Methodist met at their general conference. Now, the general conference they would meet at every four years, and it's where they would do the business of the church. And they had uh, the Book of Discipline. And the Book of Discipline kind of pretty much laid out the doctrinal beliefs. It kind of laid out uh, pretty much how they, um, their policies, their procedures, their, their core doctrines pertaining to the operation um, and overall structure of the ministry and the churches. So when the general conference met, in 1968, they made a change in the book of discipline regarding Wesley's understanding of the authority of scripture and how God's word related to tradition, reason, and experience. Instead of, as it had been from the very beginning when Wesley founded the church, instead of scripture being authoritative and how tradition, reason, and experience were to be subjected to the authority of God's word and in harmony to God's word, the governing body decided to make all four equal to each other. Scripture, tradition, reason, experience were now all accorded equal authority. Attempting to make all four of these equally authoritative resulted in making none of them authoritative and it opened a Pandora's box of issues. Because see, now you could have a scriptural position on an issue, but I have an experience. And my experience now is just as valid, it's just as authoritative, it's just as important as your view on scripture. So you, you can have an intellectual thought about something that's contrary to the word of God, but because now they're all four equal, your, your reasoning is just as authoritative as the word of God. The results could not have been more disastrous. As a matter of fact, when the General Conference of the United Methodist Church met again four years later in 1972, they reversed that decision once again and made scripture authoritative over the other three, but the damage had been done. Today, the United Methodist Church, the largest denomination in the world, is in the process of splitting into two separate denominations over their differences regarding the practice of homosexuality, the ordination of practicing homosexuals as pastors, and the rights of homosexuals to be married in the United Methodist Church by its clergy. I showed Janie this week, there was uh, an article uh, that I, I had come across as I was kind of doing research for this, and uh, it's a pastor at a church in Illinois um, who is a drag queen. 
He, he is a pastor in the United Methodist Church. Uh, he is a drag queen. Uh, he preaches in drag queen. And never guess what his name is. His, his, uh, his character name is uh, Miss Penny Cost in connection to the word Pentecost. That's, that's where this is all heading. And the church is now heading for a major split. Because see, my, my experience, my experience, the way I experience God, the way I feel, the way I think is just as important as your position on scripture. I respect yours, you need to respect mine. This charge has been largely led by the clergy and those in position of authority within the United Methodist Church. Again, when a church, when a denomination, when we abandon biblical authority, that authority always, always, always shifts somewhere to someone. And usually shifts to the people in the church who are in charge or the most influential. And in this case, it was the clergy. Throughout my time in the United Methodist Church and beyond, there's always been that this was always a hot button issue. I remember many, many times we were always, I remember one time we were given a study that they wanted us to take the churches through to, to re-examine the issue of homosexuality. And, and I'm like, what's changed? The Bible's very clear on its stance on homosexuality. You cannot find one place in scripture where homosexuality is looked at in a positive light or as a virtue. Scripture's never changed. What are we, what are we studying? Well, their, their point was, was, we want you to keep studying this issue and we're gonna make you keep studying this issue until you agree with us, which I was never gonna do. And so we in our churches just said, you know what, we're, we're not interested in doing the study. We know what we believe, we're confident in what we believe, and we're gonna stand on what we believe. Now you know why I was only there nine years. Because the people in charge who made their tradition, their reasoning, their experience more authoritative than the word of God. And that's why we praise here, we believe, because the Bible teaches, not because I came up with this, not because somebody else came up, we believe this because this is what the Bible teaches, that marriage is a covenant. And it was designed and instituted by God to be entered into by one man, one woman, faithfully devoted to one another until death does you part. God created marriage in part to be the stable foundation for thriving communities. That the marriage of one man, one woman was the best environment to raise a family in. God knew what he was doing when he instituted the covenant of marriage. We believe because the Bible teaches God made man and woman in his image. Two sexes, that God made a man a man and God made a woman a woman. And he did not make any mistakes in the gender he created you to be. Now again, just apply Wesley's formula. There's never been a time in the history of the world there's never been a tradition in the history of this world until this current generation where that has ever been questioned. 
for very good reason. The problem in the woke churches of today with woke pastors is my experience, what I believe is of greater importance than what the word of God says. I have no intention, I have no interest in being a woke pastor. I have no interest in being a part of a woke church. Now listen, black lives matter, I believe that. But so do Hispanic lives and Asian lives and Chinese lives, police lives and white lives. All lives matter. All lives are precious to God because God created them. He created us in his image. He created everything that exists. Jesus himself said in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. The world Jesus refers to there includes everyone regardless of race, color, nationality, or creed. God loves everyone equally. Everyone is equal in God's eyes and therefore everyone should be equal in our eyes as well. Whenever a church decides that it will compromise when it comes to biblical authority for standing for biblical truth, folks, it comes at a great cost. The Bible says that cost is life versus death. That cost is blessings versus cursing. But also understand Whenever a church decides it's gonna stand for biblical authority, when a church decides it is not going to abandon biblical authority, folks, we also need to understand that will also come with a cost. Either way we go on this issue, it comes at a great cost. Life versus death or blessing versus curses. We have to decide as a congregation, we have to decide as a people which way we're gonna go, which cost we're willing to pay. And I'm gonna pick it up here because again, there are some uh, other uh, consequences that, that happen, things that um, happen when a church abandons biblical authority. We're gonna kinda get into uh, those other things next week. Let's just go ahead and stand together this morning. Father, we just again thank you for the power of your word. That without your word, God, we would not know who you are. We would be lost in darkness and chaos. But because you spoke, and you spoke through your prophets, you spoke through your word, and you spoke the most clearest through your son, Jesus Christ, you have revealed yourself to us And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to take that revelation, that you would help us to take your word, God, and begin to apply that more fully. None of us here do it perfectly. That's not the point. But we want to be faithful. We want to be good stewards of your word, both in our personal life and in our corporate life together with one another because we wanna see personal life change, we wanna see congregational change, because we know that that will result in community change. And so God, we ask, Lord, that you would begin with us, our hearts, our thoughts, 
That, God, you would take all of that, Lord, all that we are, all that we think, all that we believe, all that we do, God, that you would take all of that, God, and just bring that under the authority of your word. Again, God, as I talked about, there just are those areas, those locked doors, those closed off rooms that we do not want to give you access to. And God, some of that comes through rebellion. Some of that is just fear that you may do what we don't want. You may make us go where we don't want to go to do what we don't want to do. Or God, just that fear of what would it look like if we were to give you control in that particular area. God, every one of us in this room, we're there to varying degrees. There's not a one of us here that does this perfectly. But yet, God, we strive, we want to be faithful. And so, Father, we just ask, Lord, that you would come and just conquer our hearts. That, God, you would come and just begin to remove those barriers, those excuses that faulty reasoning that would keep us from fully submitting our hearts and our lives to you and to your word. God, this morning we just invite you to come and to just speak, to speak your word over our hearts this morning. Your word says, Lord, that the thoughts you think toward us are many and that they're precious. I pray, Father, that as we hear your word being spoken over our hearts and our lives this morning, that, Father, we would hear those, those many, those precious words that you desire to release to speak over us this morning. You are a God of conviction, not of condemnation. You are a God of grace and not of guilt. So, Father, this morning, we just as a church body, we recognize and we affirm the place and the position of your word, your holy word, all of it, inspired by you, God. We recognize, and Father, we submit to that as a body that we want to be faithful, that we don't want to be tossed to and fro by various doctrines like a ship on a rough sea, Father. We want to be straight. We want to be committed. We want to be diligent. We want to be faithful. And how you're calling us as a church. So Father, unify our hearts. Unify our hearts to one another, to you and to your word. Again, Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness to us. That God, you'll never let us go. And that God, you are committed to completing the great work that you have begun in us and in this church, Father. And we thank you, Lord, for your unfailing commitment to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org.